friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. We are the radio show and podcast of the Catholic Association. We address the issues that interest you, puzzle you, and flame you in the hope that we can bring some clarity, even to the darkest corners. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, Saturday mornings at 7 a.m. Eastern Time, or you can catch the Encore at 5 p.m. We are also on Sirius XM Channel 130. Of course, our radio show is always a podcast. Go to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts or directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. Thank you for joining us again this week on Conversations with Consequences. My TCA colleague and co-host Maureen Ferguson will join me later as we learn more about Carson versus Macon. This is another important Supreme Court case beside Dobbs that will be decided in the next couple months. It's a case that could decide whether parents in states with inadequate public schools can send them to religious schools instead. Law professor Nicole Garnett of Notre Dame University joins us with an insider look at the case. But first, with the passing of the Parental Rights and Education Bill last week in Florida, we've seen the Disney Corporation come out in full force, going full woke. We discussed Disney's move to embrace gender ideology and consider some better entertainment and content options with my TCA colleagues Maureen Ferguson and Ashley McGuire. Welcome to the show, Maureen and Ashley. Hi, Gracie. Great to be on with you today. It's always fun when we get to chat together. I'm calling in uh, to my co-hostesses from Florida. We're recording from three different places. And here in Florida, we're very happy to see the signing of of the bill, which is the Parental Rights and Education uh, Act by Governor DeSantis. It uh, it, it, It is meant to protect very young children from being taught any kind of sexually related themes uh, from kindergarten to pre to third grade, which seems eminently sensible to all to all of us, to all of us parents, because sexuality is not something that needs to be taught uh, so early, certainly not in school. It has something that's very intimate to the family and, and should be kept inside that space, the teaching of sexuality to children. Also, it's uh, the act is about um, protecting the rights of parents to know what's going on in school with their children to know if uh, the child is showing signs of gender dysphoria which is something that we know very this is very terrifying that many children across the United States who to who show this the psychological disturbance which is gender dysphoria the inability to love your body as as your body is and understand your body and accept it as being either male or female these children are presenting like this at school and and the school is taking actions without informing the parents it's a little terrifying and scary but, I mean it's it's terrifying and also so it's it's a huge deal because we know as we as parents know that at school there is this uh, whole idea of parental that the per- the parent has to authorize everything right like your child can't take an aspirin or a Tylenol without express permission and now suddenly we're seeing schools taking this huge role in in the future of children with gender dysphoria deciding how the child is going to be treated uh, so. We believe here at at Conversations with Consequences that Governor DeSantis um, is addressing a very real need of parental, uh, that to keep things transparent for parents, make sure that the school is not taking any prerogatives with with the psychological development of students that does not belong to them, and also protecting young children from being sexualized early. That's right. And this bill, of course, it's been dubbed by its opponents as the don't say gay bill, but it is in reality a parental rights bill. And not only does it say that teachers should not be including as part of their curriculum in kindergarten through third grade um, information about gender ideology, but it also touches on this point that you were just making, Gracie. It's the right of parents to have access to their child's school records because in a lot of instances, Schools are actually hiding from parents what's going on with their child at school. And schools are going along with the social transitioning of children who are confused about their identity. And they're addressing these children by the opposite pronouns. They're not using their legal given name. They're allowing the child to use different bathrooms without even informing the parents, which 
it's just so outrageous on so many levels, not, not to mention just the fact of their safety. We know, of course, we've all heard about this case in Loudoun County, Virginia, where there was a boy identifying as a girl wearing a skirt using the girl's bathroom and actually sexually assaulted a girl in the girl's bathroom. So it, it, this is truly a parental rights bill that has been misnamed as the don't say gay bill. And, you know, I think this is just the latest sort of skirmish, if you will, and, you know, along the battle lines of parents be culture. <laughs> um, and I think the pandemic has really uh, exposed and magnified how sort of deep this conflict is in our culture. You know, when we're talking about um, all of these uh, school board meetings, I mean, it started with parents being able to actually see through their kids' laptops. Um, laptops which were sitting, you know, in their living rooms watching what was happening and what their kids were being taught. Um, and then parents starting to show up to school board meetings to find out why their kids' schools were still closed a year, year and a half into the pandemic. Um, and then, you know, with this kind of continued aggressive push um, by the cultural elites, if you will, uh, to ram all kinds of um, toxic and inappropriate material down kids' throats. And I think that uh, with this Florida bill, there's there's really two important lessons that parents need to take note of. The first is the way that the other side openly lies and deceives about what the nature of these types of legislation is. And I think you said that, Maureen, with the way they labeled it something that was blatantly false and had really little to do with what actually was in the text of the bill. Um, and then secondly, you know, I, I know we're going to talk about um, the reaction of Disney, which very stupidly waded right into this controversy, um, uh, shows the way that, you know, the certain elites, um, media and corporate elites, really do believe that your children should be exposed to sexual content at a very young age. And I think the case of Disney is very alarming because they're probably the largest producer of content for young children. Yes, and and it's been very uh, eye-opening to watch Disney, which has a huge footprint in Florida. And I wish I had that number on me, but they, they're a huge part of Florida's economy. They're, they're very heavy, hitter, heavy hitters in Florida. Anyone who's gone to Orlando, to the Magic Kingdom, can just even begin to imagine what an enormous operation that is and how it brings so much tourism and so much, uh, so much good work to Floridians, right? Um, so then Disney all puffed up on their, on their power, uh, in the economy, their their social power, right? Their the way that they can like, influence minds. They have gone on an all out assault on on this very common sense act signed by Governor DeSantis to protect our children and to protect um, parental the parental rights um, for children to for parents to decide what's to, to even know what's going on in in their children's schools. Um, so I'm I. It used to be when I saw corporations coming out real strong for these these woke positions that we've seen over and over again, and, and also in, with CRT, right, with with uh, critical race theory coming out real strong uh, during the, the the race riots and the demonstrations we had a couple years ago. Um, I'm I'm surprised, and I say, how do they come out and 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 purposely alienate um, their half the people in the country, right? Um, at, but I'm even more surprised with Disney because the one place that most Americans feel that is a that is a, a, a place that has to be clean and pure and decent and unsexual and perfectly, um, you know, perfectly just this perfect little um, space for children is, is the space for children for children to develop. Uh, to grow and to to grow in, in different virtues and in knowledge of the world, but without being tainted by 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 things that they shouldn't have to know about. Like we protect our children. So how can the company of that that we've that we've all grown up loving, right? That we've all grown up, it's, it's in our hearts, Disney, right? Um, how can we? How do, how is this company decide suddenly to just throw the baby out with the bathwater? 
You know, Gracie, I agree with I agree with you that on the one hand, it seems so odd just from a business standpoint. Why would a, a children's movie company wade into such a controversy, like you said? But on the other hand, I, I'm not so surprised that they gave in to the woke mob um, because for years we've observed a shift in Disney's programming and the kind of characters they're featuring. And this whole debate over the Florida bill has really shown a light on some of, on some of that. Um, and there was a really kind of on the one hand shocking, on the other hand, not so shocking video that was somehow released uh, uh, from one of Disney's executive producers talking about how her team has been implementing, in her words, a not at all secret gay agenda. She said she's been regularly adding queerness to children's programming. And, and you know, children's programming, it's sort of an interesting choice of words because um, it, it's actually programming children and and they're very Disney is very intentionally programming children to the LGBTQ agenda. And I mean, it's really indoctrination according to the agenda of the writers. And now we have this video evidence that's quite deliberate on Disney's part. So on the one hand, it's surprising that they would make such a seemingly poor business decision to wade into a controversy like this. But in reality, Disney's been moving in this direction for a long time. Yeah, you know, um, I think it was clear that uh, Disney necessarily didn't, not that they didn't want to pick this fight, um, but it seemed a little bit like the tail wagging the dog, which was these um, employees who started staging walkouts and it was, you know, kind of these like low and middle level um, staff who are predominantly like writers and lower level producers who were um, driving this. And again, it's a wake up call to parents that, um, you know, Disney's not just this company, you know, it's, it's a company composed of tens of thousands of people. And those people have made it very clear in the last few weeks that they have a very strong position on this and feel very passionately about um, advancing or opposing legislation that gives parents the right to make the decisions about how and when to talk about sexual content with their kids. And, you know, I, I've, in our house, we, we look at a couple of movie reviewing sites before we ever watch a movie. Um, and I have to say that usually the, the single thing that is the deciding factor for me is the sexual content. You know, they'll, they'll, they'll rate movies based on like how much violence it has, language substance abuse, um, and how much sexual content it has. And if it has even one marking, I won't watch it. Um, because I think even some of these, these movie reviewing sites, ideas of what is um, sexually inappropriate is not always accurate. Um, but I have noticed in a lot more movies coming out for kids, this theme of, of, of the child sort of bucking the parents um, and asserting their independence. And, you know, my kids are just watching Moana. And I was kind of in the back of my head thinking, this is a little bit of a subversive movie. It's about a girl who disobeys her father. And, you know, at the same time, she's sort of, about a girl going on an adventure and establishing her independence, but ultimately she does defy her parents. And Disney's latest movie, which was released right as this was all coming to a head with the bill in Florida, was this movie called Red Panda. And my daughter saw ads for it all over the mall and said, can we watch that tonight? And I almost didn't check because as a parent, you can get so trusting of, of these companies and Disney. And I checked and I was appalled by what I saw was basically a movie about like teenage sexual angst and defying parents and authorities. And um, everybody who let their, their kids watch the movie expressed similar discomfort. So I think Disney and, and other sort of um, movie and, and content uh, producing companies like them are getting a lot more brazen. They have plans for our children where they will say, you know, you need to go out and defy parental expectations, even in your sexual life, um, and choose what you want. Even if you're a little kid choosing to be, as this Disney exec in the video said, pansexual. She said one of her children is pansexual. 
I was I spent a little time wondering what pansexual meant. <laughs> and I, I'm still not 100%. What does it even mean? <laughs> I saw a picture. I saw a meme of somebody of a of a girl licking a pan, but I don't think that's what pansexual means. <laughs> I think it means that she really believes her child is uh, sexually attracted to everything, meaning I don't know, men, women, pets, um, appliances, doorknobs. I don't know what a uh, pansexual pan means. Everything. So this is what this are, these are the people who are making content. For our children, and our children lap it up. First, you know, find yourself, find your inner, you know, um, go achieve your inner dream, defy every parental expectation, throw off parental authority, go out into the world, don't care what society wants or, or your religion indicates or, or what the common good indicates, do what you want. And let's add on to that the sexual, the huge sexual possibilities. And, and it's really so bizarre because there used to be pretty universal agreement on the innocence of childhood and protecting the innocence of childhood and, and not sexualizing children. Um, it, I mean, the pendulum has just swung so far in this direction that it's, it's hard to believe. And it is really hard for parents because, you know, I feel like when my older children were little, we used to have a lot of movie nights and it was so much fun to make popcorn and have family movie nights. But I've noticed with my younger ones, we really don't do that very often because there's, it's so hard to find good movies to watch. And we've, I mean, in our family, we've tried to opt more for reading nights, more of a focus on building our home library. I mean, we buy so many children's books. It's unbelievable. It's, uh, you know, I, I could, you know, I'm a, I, I should have invested in Amazon. I spend so much on children's books, but, um, but we have a lot of fun with that. We, you know, try to build a fire or um, just have a reading hour instead of that movie time. But it is a loss because family movie night was, was a lot of fun. Um, I also rely heavily on audible for my younger child, my youngest child to listen to great literature. And, and, you know, so many of these movies, so many of the Disney movies are, are based on great literature. So why not have your child actually read the book? You know, the little mermaid was a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale 150 years before the movie was ever made. So why not have them read the book about the little mermaid? Um, and of course we, you know, we'd love to watch the old classics like sound of music and wizard of Oz and such. But, um, I have not tried these faith-based streaming platforms, but I really want to look into them because I've heard about them. And I think, uh, I think it would be, uh, important to look into these. Um, and I'm just going to throw out what some of them are called. Maybe our listeners are familiar with these. One is called pure flicks. Another is called cross flicks. There's another called right now media. There's one called yippee. There's up faith. Living Scriptures, His Channel, Dove Channel. Ashley, you still have a lot of little ones. Are you? Have you tried any of those other streaming services, or do no, you know much I, about them? I haven't. So I'm, you know, the Disney thing has really kind of woken me up to the fact that, you know, it's sad. We have parental controls on all of our. We have a Roku, um, probably like most people. And I've actually been. We're going to get rid of Roku because I'm so frustrated with the fact that Roku doesn't have like a master parental control. So when you turn on our TV, sometimes the content that's featured right there is like R rated. And it's so pathetic because all the talent and money at these big companies and they can't, they could probably get some guy fresh out of college who in 10 minutes could figure out how to put a master parental control so that the featured content on the home screen isn't um, R rated. Um, I've heard Apple TV is better. Um, but, you know, on all the individual apps that we have, we have it all password protected and set so that, you know, if my kids open Netflix, it's automatically set to, you know, the kids page, which is restricted to only G rated things. But even on Disney, I'm going to have to put that in there because um, Disney has been increasingly adding um, PG and PG 13 content. But, you know, what I was going to say that we've been doing because we have a similar thing. We do do a, a movie night on Fridays and I found finding content that's both entertaining and, you know, sort of worth our time and appropriate to be very challenging. Um, and I've been surprised in a pleasant way to see how some of these old classics, like you mentioned, sound of music will even hold the attention of, you know, my young, my younger, you know, three, four year olds. Um, but 
what's so interesting is that Disney's buying up those movies. So Disney has Sound of Music and Oklahoma and some of these old classics, almost like they're trying to have their cake and eat it too. And say, look, we've got all this like classic family friendly streaming content, but you know, we're turning around and with the, you know, the other hand, lobbying to basically undermine classic and traditional family values. And so um, it's just, it just really sort of highlights, I think, the challenge of, of being what I would say is actually a woke parent awake to, you know, the threat of wokeism um, is that, you know, they, they lure you in with good content and then throw, you know, insidious stuff in there. But no, I'm not familiar with any of those, um, with any of those services. Um, you know, I do know, like we use common sense media. That's something that I do to review, um, content. And one thing I like that they do is they actually look at the message as well, because I think sometimes even if a movie is clean, the message, you know, can be not good. Even just this conversation, I was thinking about every Disney movie I could possibly think of has this, has some element of the child defying the parent, even the little mermaid. You know, I haven't read the original Hans Christian Andersen um, story, but the little mermaid is a, is a story of a girl who explicitly disobeys her dad. And they're always justified and vindicated for doing it in the end. That's the problem. Um, just yesterday, my kids were watching the movie Brave. It's a newer one set in Ireland. And I turned it off because there was a scene where the daughter was being so inappropriate and bratty towards her mother, who's the queen. So it was like kind of like a double violation of authority. And I just thought, gosh, I, even I, who's so clued into all this, need to be more alert to these, these subtle and not so subtle messages that are, are in these movies. Don't you find that maybe what's at bottom of all these things, whether it's the imposition of CRT in schools or the idea in all these Disney movies, before even we get to sexuality, about defying parental authority, that really, at the, it seems to me that at the base of all of it is this idea that, that children should be divorced from their parents, in a sense. That children have this, they have this, um, that, that we need, I think on that side, on the woke side, on the on the hard left side, they're trying to break down the connection between children and their parents. And, and it makes me wonder why. I guess so they can have control over the individual. The individual is just a, a unit that buys stuff and a, a consumer is not bound to to any um, greater, more transcendent uh, things that might that, that might keep them from the market. What are they trying to do by disconnecting children from their parents? Well, one thing I would observe is that probably most of the writers of children's programming are not moms, and a lot of them probably aren't even parents. And this came home to me one time. I grew up with a young man who was wickedly funny, so clever, just a, a brilliant guy and a great writer. And he went out to Hollywood and became a writer for children's programming. He came from a very secular home that was actually sort of had an anti-religious edge and he just a completely different viewpoint than our Catholic viewpoint. And, you know, he didn't marry, he didn't have children, but he was writing the children's programming. And that, that was just sort of always in the back of my mind. And I remember one time, even though our kids didn't, watch a lot of TV when they were little, but one time I was sick and sort of desperately, you know, lying in bed with four little kids jumping all over me. My husband was out of town and I turned on the Saturday morning cartoons, the PBS programming. And and this was, you know, I don't know, 15 years ago. And even then it was a big, long discussion of divorce and handling a discussion of a sensitive topic, like a divorce in, in a way that I would not have handled it with my children. But it, it was very much kind of indoctrination rather than entertainment. Even the Saturday morning cartoons, even, you know, 15 years ago had that element. So I don't know, maybe that's one part of it. But, but I do think parents are waking up to this. And, you know, Ashley and I live here in D.C. Ashley and I talk regularly with a lot of people who are really politically savvy. And, and when this Bill first hit the national news, one of these very smart political minds said to me, you know, boy, the other side is really winning the messaging war on this don't say gay bill. And I said, you know what, I actually I totally disagree. Because even the words don't say gay, like like even the other side's messaging, the opponents of the bill, even that most people 
don't want, even if you're very supportive of the LGBT agenda in general, most people don't want other people talking to your little kids about it. So even their messaging, I don't think is, is so good. And I was, I was watching the NBC Today show coverage, and this is really what moms in America, a lot of average moms are watching. And even though it was 90% biased, the coverage, they just had one moment of accuracy where they said the bill applies in K through in K through three grades, and I thought, well, you know what? That's enough telling of the truth that I think parents will be onto this. And sure enough, the um, the Wall Street Journal did a poll uh, a couple weeks into this debate, and the poll numbers were not that surprising to me, but I think uh, surprising to a lot of people by more than two to one margin. People are supportive of the idea of this bill. And it said, uh, let's see, I'm just gonna read you some of the numbers. 61% of the people said they supported the bill, 26 opposed. Even Democratic voters in the in the poll support the law, 55 to 29%. Parents, of course, 67 to 24%. Biden voters support this law, 53 to 30%. So I do think parents are waking up to the fact that there's an agenda being pushed on our children and and that agenda is really harmful in the way it is sexualizing and robbing children of their innocence. Well, then it has, it, it's been a very beneficial thing then that we've been, we've been able to scratch the surface. We watched a, a company, a corporation like Disney come all out for this. Um, so I'm glad you're right, Maureen. I'm glad that people are waking up and... And to, before we go, I'd like to uh, mention those, those streaming platforms where parents can find great content for their children that doesn't include any sexualization. Uh, Pure Flix, Cross Flix, Right Now Media, Yippie, Up Faith, Living Scriptures, His Channel, and Dove Channel. I hope that's been helpful to our listeners. And thank you, Maureen and Ashley, for joining me today on this important topic. Great to join you, Gravy. Welcome to the show, Nicole. Thanks so much. I'm delighted to be here. We wanted to ask you on as an expert uh, to explain to us a very important case. We've been spending a lot of time on this show talking about the case of Dobbs, which will have a huge impact on, on abortion law in this country, which is very important to, to us as the, at the Catholic Association and, and to a lot of our audience. But there's another very important case uh, before the Supreme Court that we also need to be thinking about and, and worried about and, and praying about, and that's the case of Carson v. Macon, a case out of Maine. So, Nicole, we were hoping that you could tell Tell us about this case, what it's all about, how it how it got to the Supreme Court, and what its implications are. Sure. So just the bottom line first. So the question in the Carson case is whether or not a state, in this case the state of Maine, can um, exclude religious schools from the range of options available to children participating in a private school choice program. A little more background, there's a program in Maine called, it's usually called tuitioning, but Maine, Vermont, and New Hampshire have a a kind of unusual education system. Since the 19th century, um, they've allowed districts without public high schools to uh, choose if they want to. There There is a range of options they can they can send their kids to a neighboring school. They can contract even with a private school, a secular private school, to educate the kids to provide a high school education. Or they can do this thing that's basically a voucher or a scholarship called tuitioning. And in, in, in the tuitioning districts, um, they say to the, the parents, look, um, we don't have a high school, but we will let you take the money that we would pay for your public, for your public high school education, your high school education, and you can use it to buy a public uh, – you can use it to buy – high school education anywhere in the world. You can, you can go to a public school. Most kids go to neighboring public schools. You can go to a private school in the state of Maine. You can go to a private school in another state. You can go to boarding school. You can go to Swiss boarding school. The one and only limit is you may not go to a religious school um, because we don't like religious education. That's basically the bottom line. So until 1980, Maine actually did allow kids uh, participating in this program to use these dollars to go to religious schools. Um, and from 1876 to 1980, 100 years, it would, was fine. Nothing went wrong in the state of Maine by allowing these kids to go to religious schools if they chose to. And many actually did choose to go, usually to private religious schools in the state of Maine. Um, but in 1980, the state of Maine, the attorney general, um, 
decided that it would violate the First Amendment's Establishment Clause to, con- to allow kids to go continue doing what they've been doing for 100 years, which is go use these, these state dollars to go to a private school of their choice that was religious. So they said, the state of Maine said, from henceforth, you may not use your tuition and dollars to go to a school that the, the state considers sectarian. It's unclear exactly what that means. In oral argument, they suggested that sort of meant too religious. Sometimes it would be, if you were just a little religious, it might be okay, they said. But if you're really religious, you cannot go to a sectarian school or religious school with your tuition and dollars. So since 1980, the main voucher program has operated without the option of kids going to religious schools. Um, so there's an important case in 2002 called Zellman. Uh, and Zellman upheld a voucher program in Ohio, despite the fact that 96% of the kids in the voucher program were attending religious schools. And what the Supreme Court said in that in the Zellman case is, look, you can go to the state can give parents the option of going to a religious school with public funds because the state's not the one who's funding the schools. It's actually the kids' parents are funding the schools through their private choices. And all their all the Constitution requires, the Establishment Clause requires, the court held in Zellman, is neutrality toward religion and this intervening private choice, um, which is that the parents making the decision where to spend the money, not the state. Just in the same way that you could get a Pell Grant or to, to go to the University of Notre Dame or come to the University of Notre Dame where I teach on the on the GI Bill. The kids with the Pell Grants on the GI Bill, they're deciding to come to a Catholic college. It's not that the government is deciding to fund Notre Dame. Since 2002, it's been quite clear that the state of Maine could allow kids to use these dollars to go to religious schools if they, they could constitutionally do so. But still, the state has persisted in its discrimination against these choices for these kids. And they're, they're position basically is in the case, in the oral argument is we could do it, but we just don't want to. We want to just fund secular education and we should get to do that. So the question in in Carson really is, do they get to do that? So does the state have any interest sufficient to justify this blatant discrimination against religious schools and the children and parents who, if given the option, choose to attend religious schools. So a little fun fact, the program at issue in Carson versus Macon has been challenged many, many times in all, as, as have the programs in New Hampshire and Vermont, all these programs excluding religious schools. All of these challenges until Carson have been unsuccessful with one exception, the Second Circuit earlier last year, well, earlier, yeah, last year, invalidated uh, Vermont program. But I was the first, I was among the first lawyers just to challenge the exclusion of religious schools from the main program in a case called Bagley versus Count of Raymond. I was 27 years old, <laughs> right out of law school, um, and we filed a lawsuit um, challenging it. We lost, but we should have won. Nicole, I was just going to ask you about this because clearly school choice is an issue that's really close to your heart. And I understand you've been working on this case in particular for a long time, but you're also involved with the Alliance for Catholic Education at Notre Dame. You're involved with the Religious Liberty Initiative at Notre Dame. So many good things going on out there at Notre Dame. Um, but um, I understand you also filed an amicus brief in this case, along with the Notre Dame Religious Liberty Initiative. And I was wondering if you could tell us what you argued in that brief. Yeah, sure. So pretty clear, I think, unless there's a technical sort of procedural problem with the case, which I hope isn't the case, that the the, the parents are, that means losing this case. It was clear at oral argument that the court, the Supreme Court had no patience for the Maine's argument, the sort of, I can discri- we can discriminate if we want to argument. The basic argument was in the Maine case, in the, in the Carson case, and in the lower court, which upheld the program, was that there was a distinction between discriminating against a religious institution because of its character as a religious institution, because it is Catholic or Lutheran, um, which is unconstitutional. Everybody agrees with that. And discriminating against it because you don't want to pay for religious stuff. Sometimes this is called the status use distinction. There are these, there's several cases leading up to Carson, which made clear it was unconstitutional to discriminate, exclude a school or a, a religious institution from a public program or voucher program, tax credit program, because it was religious, because of its religious character. But there's some stray language in these opinions that said, well, you know, we're reserving the question whether or not states might just choose not to fund religious education because they want to avoid religious uses of state money. And in our brief that we filed, we represented Catholic, Muslim, and uh, Jewish schools. And what our brief said was, look, for the vast majority of believers and religious institutions and schools in particular, 
the distinction between doing religious things and being religious is it's a distinction without a difference because to be a catholic school is to to be is to teach religion to imbue the day i'm a catholic school mom right to imbue everything about the school with the faith the same is true in the jewish tradition the same is true in the islamic tradition so to say sure you can participate in the program and be an islamic school you just can't teach islam you just you can't you can't teach the muslim faith is to say you can't participate or to put it slightly differently is to put it the the schools to an unconstitutional choice sure you can participate, even if you're a Catholic school or a Jewish school or a Muslim school, but you can't teach religion, which is to say to them, effectively, you can participate if you cease to be who you are as a religious school, cease to be a Catholic school. And we talked, it was it was a lot of fun to write this brief, because we, especially for, we, I worked with students on the brief at the Religious Liberty Initiative in Notre Dame. It was fun for them, most of, many of them had gone to Catholic schools, but they didn't know anything about these other faith traditions. We were able to talk with our clients about what is a Jewish day school look like? What is their view of teaching religion? And why is it to say that they can't just cease to be religious or cease to be Jewish or only be Jewish sort of after school in order to participate? Why does that make no sense? It was quite clear at the oral argument that the Supreme Court agreed with our argument that they, um, was also the plaintiff's argument, but that they they actually uh, realized that for most religious people, you can't put your faith in a closet to get public funds. In fact, Justice Gorsuch said at the oral argument, to, to make that a requirement is not only to put religious people to this sort of unconstitutional test, you can have the money or your faith, but it's also to discriminate amongst religions, because some maybe Sunday school is okay, but for, you know, maybe for Protestants, according to Justice Gorsuch's oral argument, Sunday school is okay, but for Catholics, we, we want our kids to be able to attend a school where Catholics. The faith is taught throughout the day. So that was our brief, and that was kind of how the argument went. It seemed to go very well for the plaintiffs. It seems like they're likely to win. Hopefully, we won't have schools put to this kind of a test again. Hopefully, this is going to close some unfortunate stray language, loopholes that the court kind of left open, and it will help not just the school choice movement, but it will also help in other areas of the law and other areas where religious organizations seek to participate fully in public life, them to do so without having to make this choice between being, you know, basically to abandon their faith in order to get the public dollars, which is not acceptable, and the court, I think, will make clear is unconstitutional. That's why there's this huge implications for the, for the case going forward. So do you mind explaining what some of those implications might be if, if we have a win in this case. Um, I'm also curious if you have any sense of when that decision might come down. Um, but but also, will will a, a win in this case sort of apply beyond just the education sector? Yeah, so it's one of the big cases this year, and they tend to come down late in the term, I think, um, mostly because, you know, people are busy writing concurrences and dissents, so I don't expect it until June of the decision. Um you know, the, if the court uh, rules in favor of the plaintiffs and validates uh, the exclusion of religious schools, there are a lot of implications. But we can just start with edu- in the education context. Um, one major impediment to the expansion of private school choice um, historically has been state constitutional establishment clauses. They're often called Blaine Amendments. Um, and often, even after the court, Supreme Court made clear that you could have vouchers or private school choice and that included religious school options, um, many advocates, uh, many opponents of school choice will not only in the halls of legislatures scream about Blaine amendments and how this is unconstitutional under the, let's say, Missouri Constitution, but they immediately file a lawsuits in state courts saying, well, it doesn't matter what the federal constitution says or means, the state constitution prohibits this, so you have to invalidate this program. Um, so one huge implication of Carson, if it comes out the way people predict, will really be to take those arguments off the table. And that will be a major, eliminating a major impediment to the expansion of school choice. Um, provide job training, um, provide, you know, publicly funded homeless shelters and says, but only if you, even if you're religious, they can't have religious programming. That, I think those things will all be called into question. So it's actually very, very sweeping um, implications if Carson comes out if it does invalidate this restriction on the Nicole, Nicole, I, I was thinking in the past, um, these uh, the Blaine amendments that you mentioned, which um, we, we might explain are amendments um, that were that were put on 
um, in, in, a, in a way that was an, maybe expressing anti-Catholic bigotry to make sure that state funds didn't go to fund any primarily Catholic, but of course other religious uh, ventures. And they exist all over the country in different states. Um, and I think primarily in the past, it was an issue of proselytizing. Like they didn't want they didn't want the state to go to, for instance, to schools who were proselytizing Catholicism to children and, and turning uh, maybe um, children who, who were Protestants into Catholics, uh, for instance. But now I see it in a more complicated way as, as, as religious traditions, all the major religious traditions, become less and less uh, concur- uh, congruent with the current cultural climate and things like gender ideology and things like that. Um, it's going to be even harder for secular states uh, to want to fund, like, say, a Catholic school where um, traditional sexual morality is taught. Do you think that there's going to be, if, if, even if Carson, um, if Carson is decided properly and, and in our favor, there's going to be a lot of fight. There's going to be extra fight back um, on on those issues. No, to not only not only be afraid of proselytizing to children from the from the secular perspective, but also having them learn things which aren't which aren't uh, part of the modern ideology any, anymore. Um. So, yeah, so it's a complicated question. I mean, I, I do want to make clear that if the if Carson comes out the right way and, and Zelda, in the case I mentioned before, the, the, the school choice programs do not limit in any way the ability of schools to proselytize. I mean, I, I mean, I would call it evangelize. I mean, I certainly hope that the Catholic school that my kids attend evangelizes. That's, yes. what, that's part of being Catholic school. Um, but uh, so if the, the idea here is that it's, it shouldn't be a concern because the parents are making the decision. If the parents want this, if non-Catholic parents want to send their kids to Catholic schools, and many do, um, then it's up to the parent to make that decision about whether they risk, you know, run the risk that their kids will, the, the kids at the Catholic school, the Protestant child become Catholic. Um, but to your point about um, whether or not there'll be restrictions on these funds to prevent the teaching of certain things, I, I think, you know, that's honestly a concern. I mean, currently 31 states, D.C. and Puerto Rico, have at least one private school choice program, um, and none of them place any such restraints on the teaching of the faith or teaching of traditional values. Um, One, Maryland does restrict, uh, has a non-discrimination provision that prohibits the participating schools from um, discriminating on the basis of LGBT status in hiring or admissions, although I understand that program has been invalidated by a district court, a federal court, um, for discriminating against religion, and there's some kind of settlement negotiations going on. Your question is a good one. So if the state, and, and other than that, really, the schools have a lot of freedom to, to be themselves. Uh, I think the big question for religious schools and for advocates like me and for Catholic, I'm on the USCCB's Committee on Catholic Education as a consultant, I mean, for the church, is should we be afraid that these funds will come increasingly with strings that threat that threaten our religious identity and our autonomy? I think that's a, a legitimate concern and hasn't really happened yet. And I hope that those battles are primarily political. Um, we should be um, not afraid to walk if if that happens um, from a walk away from the money that is. Uh, and there will be religious liberty challenges. It is not clear to what extent the government condition the receipt of funds on doing things that violate a religious conviction of the recipient. It's going to be clear, I hope, after Carson, that it can't be conditioned on secularizing. But the question of, like, not teaching certain things, like speech restrictions, those are lawsuits to be filed in the future. And I think that, you know, we don't know how those are going to come out yet. But, it is, you know, we need to be careful to remember that, you know, the money is, we should, in justice demands that Catholic schools, Muslim schools, Jewish schools, which serve the common good, be be able to fully participate in the very important job of educating America's young people. But if the regulations threaten our religious liberty or identity, we should just walk away. Mm-hmm. And we should, I hope, never get to the point where we can. Well, I agree with you, and I hope that that never happens. We should always be true to our values and our and our traditions and not fall in, not fall in line just to receive money from the government. Uh, that would be a crime. So anyway, thank you, Nicole. We're out of time. And um, obviously, you're an expert on all things school choice. And maybe you will join us again on the program after Carson comes down and we can talk about how that will play out. Wonderful. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. 
And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we prepare for Holy Week by focusing on the life-changing dialogue the Lord Jesus wants to have with us as we retrace with Him the most important events in the history of the world. We call this week holy first and foremost because of all Jesus did during this week, from his triumphal entry into his city on Palm Sunday, to his teaching in the temple, to the Last Supper, to his prayer in Gethsemane, to his arrest, torture, crucifixion, preaching and death on Good Friday, to his rest in the tomb, and his glorious resurrection on the third day. But Holy Week is holy because it's also supposed to make us holy. If we follow Jesus up close, if we enter into the mystery, if we receive within all that he won for us during this time, Holy Week ought to be our most faith-filled week of the year. Holy Week begins with Palm Sunday, the only Mass during the year in which we have two Gospel passages. One at the start of the Mass, in which we ponder Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, when the crowds hail Him with palm branches and shouts of, Hosanna, blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And the second, the solemn reading of the Lord's Passion, which we enter into Jesus' self-giving during the Last Supper, His suffering in the Garden, His arrest, interrogations, torture, carrying of the cross, crucifixion, and death, as the fickle crowds shout, Crucify Him. It's normal on Palm Sunday for preachers to focus on the Passion, the longest Gospel read throughout the year, and with the passages on the Resurrection, the real heart of the Gospel. Today, however, to orient us for Holy Week, I'd like to preach on the first Gospel, the Gospel of Palm Sunday proper, because it shows us how to welcome Jesus and journey with Him throughout these days. The details are few, but highly significant. Let's begin with Jesus' transportation. He sent two of His disciples to go into the village opposite them where they would find a tethered colt on which no one had ever sat, to untie it and bring it to Him. When the owner asked, Why are you untying this colt? They replied, as Jesus had instructed them, The Master has need of it. Jesus then rode that colt into Jerusalem. Jesus could have easily walked into the city. After all, except for occasional boat rides across the Sea of Galilee, he walked everywhere. But he wanted to ride the foal of a donkey on which no one had ever sat. He had need of it to fulfill the Messianic prophecy announced by Zechariah, who wrote, Rejoice heartily, O daughter Zion! Shout for joy, O daughter Jerusalem! See, your king shall come to you, a just savior he is, humble and riding on an ass." on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. Just as Solomon had ridden a mule, so Jesus was riding a consecrated colt no one had ever used, an indication that he was indeed the son of David and rightful successor to him. Whereas riding a horse would have been a sign of war, to ride a donkey was a sign that the one riding was coming in peace. Zechariah's prophecy continues, He shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your captives free from the waterless pit. This king of peace, riding on the foal of a donkey, would be a universal king who would set people free not from political enemies, but even from the pit, in other words, from death. As we prepare for this most holy of weeks and prepare to welcome Jesus, we can learn a lot from this colt. The Master has need of us, too. The ancient Gregorian chant for the hymn Christians sing on Palm Sunday, All Glory, Laud, and Honor, there's a verse in Latin that reads, Cis pius ascensor, tuus ad nos simus salus, tecum nos capitat herbs veneranda dei, which can be translated as, May you be the holy rider, and we your little colt, so that the venerated city of God may grasp us together with you. Jesus wants us to enter the holy city with him. He wants us to collaborate with him in this work of salvation. St. Josemaria Escriva, the 20th century apostle of the laity, sought to imitate and help others to emulate this donkey in welcoming Jesus and assisting his work. There are hundreds of animals more beautiful, more deft, and more strong, he wrote. But it was a donkey Christ chose when he presented himself to the people as king in response to their acclamation. Jesus wants us like a donkey to be docile, diligent, steady as his companion. That's the type of cooperation Jesus wants from all of us this holy week and beyond. The second thing we can mention are the palm branches. St. Matthew tells us, 
The very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and strewed them. Throughout the Middle East, at Jesus' time and still today, the palm branch is a symbol of victory, joy, goodness, peace. Because of the nourishing dates that palm trees produce, life, even eternal life. God instructed the Jews to use palm branches during the Feast of Tabernacles. David was welcomed with palm branches the day he was enthroned. Solomon had palm branches carved into the walls and doors of the temple. The Maccabeans used them after they defeated the Greeks in battle in Old Testament times. The book of Revelation describes the redeemed as wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands as they stand before the throne of God and of Jesus the Lamb. At the beginning of Holy Week, we Christians take up palm branches. Two, we could say, roll out the red carpet to welcome the Lord Jesus as he enters his week. We proclaim with joy his victory, his goodness, his peace, and how he leads us to eternal life. The priest prays as he blesses the branches at the beginning of Mass. Almighty ever-living God, sanctify these branches with your blessing, that we who follow Christ the King in exaltation may reach the eternal Jerusalem with him. Renewing ourselves in the white robes of our baptism and holding palm branches in our hands, we stand before the Lamb as He takes away our sins by what He accomplished on Good Friday. And then we seek to join Him, the Lamb looking as if He has been slain, as we seek to enter with Him into the eternal Jerusalem. The third and last element I'll mention is what those palm branches those with palm branches jubilantly shout as Jesus enters Jerusalem on the cold. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna is a Jewish expression that means save us now or deliver us promptly. It's a recognition that Jesus is coming as the son of David as the king to save. The whole phrase is taken from Psalm 118, which the Jews used to sing on the Feast of Tabernacles. We pray in that great psalm, Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Save us, Hosanna. We beseech you, O Lord. Give us success. Blessed is he who enters in the name of the Lord. Bind the festal procession with branches up to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I will give you thanks. Jesus, they were proclaiming, was coming in the Lord's name to deliver them, to lead them ultimately to the altar, to sacrifice with thanksgiving to God. Little did they know what that fulfillment would entail, but we know. Every Mass we make our own, the words of Psalm 18, and the joyful shouts of the people. We focus on God's being holy, 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 and how heaven and earth are full of His glory, before we say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord, and cry out from the highest rooftops, Hosanna, deliver us, save us. This is what we do, likewise, at the beginning of Holy Week. We recognize that it is in this week that Jesus comes in the name of God the Father to save us. He comes to lead us to the altar, the upper room in Calvary, where he offers himself to the Father for that deliverance and seeks to help us to offer ourselves together with him. Before the procession into the church begins, the priest prays, Today we gather together to herald with the whole church the beginning of the celebration of the Lord's Passion, that is to say, of his Passion and Resurrection. For it was to accomplish this mystery that he entered his own city of Jerusalem. Therefore, with all faith and devotion, let us commemorate the Lord's entry into the city for our salvation, following in his footsteps, so that being made by his grace partakers of the cross, we may have a share also in his resurrection and in his life. Let us ask him for the grace that this upcoming week may be the holiest of our year, and indeed lead us to follow the Lord we acclaim, all the way to the fulfillment of what he accomplished for us during these sacred days. The Master indeed has need of us. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 